welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. Or check out SubChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We are at a truly critical juncture right now in the U.S.-China relationship, and every relevant utterance that comes out of the Biden administration's foreign policy team, as well as every statement out of Zhongnanhai or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or in official Chinese media, is being parsed by interested parties all over the world, all of them keenly aware of just how truly consequential the course of this relationship is going to be in the next few years. There's a sense in Washington that the new administration's direction on China is not yet set in stone. Uh, things have changed too much, I think, for anyone to be blithely talking about a return to pre-Trumpian times, which were halcyon days, even when we recall just how strained the relationship already was during the later Obama years. But neither are many expecting a simple continuation of the aggressive and often deliberately obnoxious policies that came out of the Trump White House and the State Department. Uh, between these polls, though, there is plenty of room for disagreement. One issue that will inevitably rank among the biggest points of contention both domestically and in all likelihood between Washington and Beijing, will be Taiwan. Uh, for Americans, Taiwan is easily one of the thorniest issues. It forces us to confront the tension between, on the one hand, our cherished ideals and our democratic commitments, and on the other, the pragmatic considerations of, of geopolitical reality. Taiwan presents us with genuine ethical dilemmas. It, it forces us to reckon with historical facts that are often very, very inconvenient. On January 9th, just three days after that day of infamy on which the U.S. Capitol came under assault, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo further complicated the Taiwan issue for the Biden administration by announcing an end to self-imposed restrictions on contacts between the U.S. government and Taiwan, a move welcomed by DPP Taiwan diplomats and some American China watchers, but also decried by others as a reckless move made largely, and I think transparently, with an eye to his own presidential or maybe gubernatorial aspirations in 2024. Joining me to sort through all of this and to share his own views on how the Biden team should approach the fraught issue of Taiwan is Paul here. Paul is a distinguished fellow at the Center for the National Interest, dealing with Chinese and East Asian issues. He served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia from 2007 to 2015. Prior to that, he was a senior analyst at the CIA's Directorate of Intelligence in their China Issue Group. He's the author of Mr. X and the Pacific, George F. Kennan and American Policy in East Asia. Not long ago, he published a couple of articles about Taiwan policy in the national interest, where he writes frequently. Uh, the first of those articles was co-authored with another former national intelligence officer for East Asia, John Culver. Today's conversation will focus on those pieces, the strategic dilemma of Taiwan's democracy and the inconvenient truth about Taiwan's place in the world. Paul here, welcome to Seneca. This conversation is long overdue. Thank you, Kaiser. It's a great pleasure and a privilege to invited to participate. Oh, it's a delight to have you. Let me start with this, Paul. As a genuine expert on George Kennan and somebody who knows Kennan's oeuvre in and out, including, of course, Long Telegram and the Mr. X article published in, in 1947 in Foreign Affairs that, you know, was based on that telegram, what do you think George Kennan would have made of the State Department's ostensibly Kennan-inspired screed about China that Pompeo put out? That's a very good question. I've been involved in debates about that. I mean, my understanding is that the document was intended to be kind of a, well, not a sequel, but kind of to replicate uh, or maybe an homage to Kennan's X article and the long telegram. I, I think it didn't qualify, frankly, in either respect. Kennan was not an ideologue. And I think that document very much reflected the perspective of an ideologue. I think that Kennan, in fact, I, I talk about this in my book. And in fact, there was another article I published, uh, I think in the National Interest, uh, 
about two years ago in which I addressed this question as to what Kenan will be doing about East Asia. I, I, I think my, my problem with that, that State Department document was that it framed the challenge from China very much the way that the challenge from the Soviet Union had been perceived for the duration of the Cold War. And Kennan was certainly the expert on that. But I think Kennan would make the argument that China today does not pose the kind of threat that the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. Uh, it's not an existential ideological contender. I mean, and we can go in, in great depth on this, but I think the bottom line is that the Soviet leadership during the Cold War firmly subscribed to the view that peaceful coexistence between its system and the Western capitalist democratic system was not possible. And hence, that led to an existential kind of contest. The Chinese, I don't think, have ever subscribed to that and don't today. The idea that capitalism is incompatible with China's system is obviously been invalidated by the fact that socialism with Chinese characteristics is as much an importation of elements of capitalism as it is other things. But the Chinese, I think they're, I think they are genuinely, and people argue with me on this, I think the Chinese are genuinely interested in coexisting with the Western democratic capitalist system, but they're simply competing against it for legitimacy and international influence. I think that's the nature of the ideological contest that we're engaged in with China now. Uh, but it's not a, a winner-take-all contest. It's not a zero-sum contest. And I think that Kennan would have made that argument uh, in ways that were kind of contrary to the way that the struggle has been was characterized in the new State Department document. So speaking of ideology, we Americans, we love us some democracy. I mean, I, I imagine that even those whose passions were so perverted that they thought attacking the Capitol at Trump's instigation was a good idea, believe themselves ultimately to be doing so in the name of, of democracy. Uh, seeing democracy imperiled as it was on January 6th, I think for many of us uh, reinforced or in some cases reawakened an abiding love for the system of government. Um, so that love uh, coupled with the American instinct to root for the underdog makes it pretty easy to see why uh, we're going to support the democratic David, um, Taiwan, against the authoritarian Goliath of China, right? Uh, in, in your pieces, you make clear, and I think we need to, to make this unambiguous, uh, that you believe Taiwan's democracy is something that the U.S. should continue to champion and should seek to preserve. Uh, but like it or not, there is a lot of complex history involved. And Part of that history, as you and John Culver argue, is that at the time that the U.S. began the process of switching recognition to the PRC, uh, Taiwan, the ROC, was by no means a democracy. I mean, sure, it wasn't communist, but it wasn't a democracy. Uh, the essays you authored emphasize the importance of history and in that spirit, even if it's just for those who may need a refresher, let's go through some of the salient history. Um, you can start where you'd like. I mean, whether in the retreat uh, in, in 1949 or later uh, with the, the loss of Taiwan's UN seat and the Nixon-Kissinger openings in the early 70s, and maybe, you know, take it up to the, the death of, you know, of, of Jiang Kai-shek and the early stirrings of, of liberalization under Jiang Jingguo. Yes. Well, actually, I've, uh, I love questions like that because uh I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dual-headed. I mean, I, I'm a career intelligence officer, but I'm an academic historian. Uh, and I've always tried to highlight uh, and emphasize the importance of the historical perspective and historical context in any of these analytical issues. And as you said, it's, a, it's, it, it's, it's particularly important uh, in the Chinese case because of the weight of history in Chinese, uh, the Chinese political mindset, but on the Taiwan issue, because there's a very unique history that sets up uh, really the dilemma that we face and, and Taiwan faces today. Back to your original point, of course Taiwan's democratization uh, is a tremendous achievement and needs to be hailed and, and, uh, and fostered and promoted and protected to the extent that we can by the United States. But, you know, the irony, the paradox is that that all post-dated uh, the strategic context in which the U.S., China, Taiwan, well, and the cross-strait relationship was created. Uh, as you said, I mean, it's a complicated history, but Taiwan is still in the middle of an unresolved civil war. And in fact, this is highly debated today. And my colleague, John Culver, who you mentioned, published an article uh, earlier in the fall, which emphasized this as well. The Taiwanese perspective is that we were not party to that. The, the ethnic local native population of Taiwan was not party to that civil war. 
and should not be bound by it. Uh, we withdrew from it when its participants passed from the scene. Uh, but just to briefly summarize that, after World War II, a, a previously percolating civil war between nationalists and communists for control of China renewed itself and played out for the rest of the 1940s. And unfortunately, the nationalist regime under Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek, was on the losing side of that, of that war. And he withdrew his nationalist government to the island of Taiwan as the last readout. And the United States had nominally supported him during the Civil War. And as we say in the article, not because he was a Democrat, but because he was an anti-communist. Uh, unfortunately for the people of Taiwan, he imposed a very autocratic and authoritarian government on the local population of Taiwan. And in fact, Taiwan remained under martial law into the 1970s until he passed away. And his son, as you mentioned, Zhang Jingguo, was his successor and began this process of democratization. The dilemma today is that because of the democratization process, as I said, the people of Taiwan, who frankly were never great fans of Chiang Kai-shek, believed that with his departure, the Civil War ended. They were never consulted uh, as part of that process. And their democracy should be the sole determinant of what their international status is in the future. But the intervening years, unfortunately, this is what complicated the situation, yielded in the, over the course of the 1970s, the normalization process between the United States and China. And it took six or seven years after, uh, you mentioned Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, they began the process for strategic reasons in 1971 and 1972 of normalizing relations with the Chinese victors in that civil war. In fact, one of the historical paradoxes that most people don't recall is that for 25 years, the United States recognized Chiang Kai-shek's government on Taiwan as the government of China. Right which was quite anomalous. You had a much larger government on the mainland. But in any way, in the 1970s, we began the process of correcting that. And the reason it took from 1972 until 1979 to normalize relations between Washington and Beijing is that we had to work out some kind of an agreement on how Taiwan mm -hmm. was going to be dealt with. Uh, and that's what yielded over the course of several years uh, what you referred to as the three communiques. The first communique was the normalization document that was issued when Nixon first visited China in 1972. Uh, the most important one is the normalization communique, which was released in January of 1979. Right. Uh, and in that document, we committed, Washington committed to shifting its recognition to, um, it had previously abrogated what had been a defense pact with Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan uh, and agreed only to have unofficial relations with Taiwan uh, into the future. Now, there was a third communique that came along a couple of years later that was provoked by the persistence of U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. But collectively, all of these documents committed to the United States to uh, an, a one-China policy and only unofficial relations with Taiwan. What complicated the matter was that it was 10 years later that Chiang Kai-shek passed away. Uh, actually, just well, 75, I think it was, and the Democratization Party began. Uh, and over the course of the, uh, of the 1980s and 90s, uh, and through today, you've had this democratization process in Taiwan, the people of which think we were never consulted by any of the parties to the three communiques. We never accepted the legitimacy of the civil war government under Chiang Kai-shek. But basically, that's the historical trap Indeed. that the three parties are now caught in. Yeah, exactly. How do we reconcile the political change on Taiwan with the strategic dilemmas that uh, have been created by this historical baggage as far as the people of Taiwan are concerned. Yeah, and that is, it is the essence of the dilemma. Uh, complicating these things um, are that around the time of the August 17th communique of 1982, the third of those communiques, uh, there were the six assurances that were given to Taiwan also in 82 uh, to clarify to our by then erstwhile ally of the U.S. position. Can you talk about the content of these and the extent to which their content was actually known uh, despite the fact that they were officially classified? Yeah, they were, they were informally known, had been for many years. But the Trump administration just last summer, I think, August or September, uh, publicly declassified them for the first time, even though, as I said, they'd been well known. Uh, but this was, the six assurances were uh, assurances that were made to the authorities, to the government on Taiwan, on the occasion of the third communique in which we 
the United States basically promised Beijing that it had no intention of selling arms to Taiwan over the long term uh, and would try to minimize those over time to lead to a final resolution. I can't right. remember the exact words. I mean, as an aside, there are continuing debates about whether uh, either side is in compliance with that that document. But President Ronald Reagan at the time was a strong supporter of Taiwan for obvious you know, political and diplomatic reasons. And he issued an internal document which provided assurances to Taiwan that although we have made this commitment to Beijing to over time reduce our arms sales relationship with the island, we're not going to set a, a deadline for ending those arms sales. We're not going to negotiate with Beijing on our arms sales to Taiwan. We're not going to put pressure on Taiwan to mm -hmm. negotiate with Beijing on anything. And we're not going to change our official position. None, none of this should be interpreted as constituting any change to Washington's official position on Taiwan's sovereignty or the provisions of the, I should have mentioned earlier, the Taiwan Relations Act. When we normalized with Beijing in 1979, there was obviously a strong congressional support. Uh, this was under the Carter administration for a continued relationship right. with Taiwan. So Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which basically outlined the parameters under which we would conduct our unofficial relationship with Taiwan. Uh, and there was a generic reference there uh, within that document, by the way, to uh, the idea that we would we would view any the United States would view any effort by Beijing to uh, address the Taiwan issue through a use of force as a matter of great concern to the United States and that the United States would continue to provide for Taiwan's self-defense. Uh, I would emphasize, uh, I mentioned this only because there is a conventional wisdom that we have a defense pact with Taiwan as reflected in the Taiwan Relations Act. We in fact do not have a defense pact. We are not formally committed to defend Taiwan and the TRA does not formally commit us to do that because as a, as a piece of congressional legislation, it didn't have that authority over the executive branch. Uh, now it goes without saying that as a piece of congressional legislation, Beijing's position has been that the TRA has nothing to do with us and we're not bound by it. Right, right. But anyway, the six assurances were a follow-up to that, to say that the, the, the Taiwan Relations Act and our previous commitments remain intact. And uh, the Trump administration, in its efforts to reinforce and reaffirm our political and diplomatic support to the authorities in Taiwan, to the government in Taiwan, publicized that. As part of its efforts to upgrade the relationship with Taiwan, which we've been doing for several years. Yeah, uh, and we'll get into exactly how we have been upgrading that relationship. Uh, Paul, your piece titled The Inconvenient Truth About Taiwan's Place in the World uh, sets up what's now become a very familiar argument that's heard, I think, with increasing frequency from both Republicans and Democrats, uh, that democratic Taiwan faces a mounting threat right now from an increasingly aggressive Beijing and that Xi Jinping is hell-bent on uh, making unification with Taiwan or reunification, as he would have it, his legacy. Uh, it's often claimed that this is actually the real reason that he abolished term limits, so that he could complete this great enterprise <laughs> on, on Taiwan. Um, but, you know, the only thing standing in the way of, of this, of course, is the American military, either by way of direct intervention or, you know, by sufficiently arming Taiwan so that they'll be able to, to resist, um, or both. Uh, this, this argument, I think, has the appeal of simplicity, uh, but needless to say, you don't, you don't see it this way. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, strategic ambiguity in a second here. But first, you make the case that this ignores both Taiwan's behavior and the U.S.'s behavior. Uh, would you spell this out? Uh, how are tensions attributable to anything more than Xi Jinping's belligerence? Um, and maybe we can start with, with Taiwan and then look at U.S. Uh, sort of salami slicing, as, as, as Beijing would allege. Yes, sir. Um... Well, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the way that you frame the issue is kind of, I suppose, the prevailing characterization. Uh, it's Xi Jinping. Uh, he is personally hell-bent on making unification with Taiwan part of his legacy, uh, and he's pushing the envelope. And there are certainly elements of truth to that. But my own view is that it's not exclusively Xi Jinping. This is a collective leadership mindset that's been around for generations. And I don't think it was, uh, this is not a, uh, a unilateral decision by either Xi Jinping or the collective leadership. Now's the time to, to push for Taiwan uh, unification. And again, this is a, perhaps not a majority view, but the Chinese aren't looking for excuses or reasons to use force against Taiwan. In fact, they're not really looking for reasons to be 
expansionist or aggressive internationally because they have a wealth of domestic priorities and threats to what they perceive to be internal stability that uh, would preoccupy their time if they didn't uh, feel compelled to deal with some of the other issues. Right. But your point is, is, is one of the ones we emphasized, I emphasized in that article. Xi Jinping, there is a reactive component to what he's doing. The question that I get asked frequently, why, why is Xi Jinping pushing so hard against Taiwan right now? And my answer is because of what he sees the, the government in Taiwan and the government in Washington doing, right. uh, which, which from Beijing's perspective are pushing the envelope, are changing the status quo, and from Beijing's perspective are perhaps in violation of, well, from China's perspective, the three communiques. Right. Uh, and I, what I think, specifically are they are they pointing to? Well, I, I think they're they're pointing to a drift away from, if not a renunciation of the one China framework. Mm-hmm. And this is there's an interesting complexity here that the domestic Taiwan political part of this equation is also very complicated. But I mentioned earlier that Chiang Kai-shek was the head of the Nationalist Party. Of, he was the the anti-communist side of the Civil War when he came to the island. And for the next, what, 40, 50 years, that was remain, even after his death, that remained the ruling party of Taiwan. Right. And for much of that period, it was still at least nominally committed to the idea that it would one day reclaim the mainland and be the government of China again. And in fact, this is reflected in the fact that Taiwan is formally known as the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. But what happened after the democratization process started was that a an opposition movement began that had a, a more nativist local identity uh, and was no, not, not interested in the unification goal. And in uh, in 2000, the Democrat, well, that, that, that opposition movement became the Democratic Progressive Party, which is generally referred to kind of perhaps not somewhat imprecisely as the pro-independence party. Yeah, uh, they've retreated from sure. you know yeah. an explicit pro-independence. Although their position is, well, we've always been independent. We're the Republic of China. We've been independent since 1912. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but and I'll condense the history here. Uh, the, the first DPP president was a man named Chen Shui-bian, who was uh, relatively volatile in pushing a separatist mindset and identity and agenda, uh, and it really increased tensions across the Taiwan Strait. To the point that the Bush administration actually felt compelled to sort of slap him on the wrist. Yes, they did. The, uh, the Bush 43 presidency. Uh, I mean, yes. We had at least one episode. George W. Said. Bush, uh, when the premier right. of China was in Washington, he made a public statement, which was quite a uh, dramatic move, uh, reaffirming Washington's non-support, I think is the word phrase that they used for independence. And I think Bush... Uh, affirmed that the United States did not uh, support unilateral changes to the status quo by either side in the Taiwan Strait. And this uh, reined in Chen Shui-bian a bit and chastened him. Much to Beijing's relief, he was succeeded by Ma Ying-jeou, who who represented the Nationalist Party and was more, and in fact was an ethnic mainlander. What's called a Weishengren, yeah. Yes. The Communist Party of China is more comfortable <laughs> with the Nationalist Party because at least they're committed to the idea of one China, or were rhetorically. That's right. Now, that there has been a lot of salami slicing about that over the years. But to condense the story, uh, Mao was then succeeded by Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who was just reelected last year. Uh, and she is from the Democratic Progressive Party again. So you have the same kind of historical tensions uh, where Beijing is concerned about a party that represents this kind of separatist agenda. Now, it's true, as many commentators have said, that Tsai Ing-wen is not nearly as volatile and unpredictable as Chen Shui-bian was. Right. He's uh, simply not. I mean, uh, that's not, of course, how Beijing sees. I mean, there's a kind of curious phenomenon that I've seen. I, it, it reminds me of the way they, they talk about, uh, about Tsai Ing-wen very much the same way they talk about the Dalai Lama. Um, <laughs> I mean, splitist, yes. Exactly, right? I mean, she's vilified there, but at the same time, she strikes most outside observers as, as quite a moderate. Well, um, she, she is. I mean, she's a relative moderate, and she's much more deliberate and, and creative in her thinking, uh, and she certainly is an inflammatory in her rhetoric. But here, here's the problem. As different as she is from Chen Shui-bian, it's what she has in common with Chen Shui-bian that is a primary concern to Beijing. Uh, and and that is this kind of incremental drift away from a firm one China framework and one policy. 
which started percolating after democratization happened uh, over the course of the 1990s. And again, there's a lot of scriptural debate about this and lots of legalistic arguments and things. It comes down, you know, simply to, in some respect, to salami slicing. But uh, one other little arcane relevant, but relevant period of uh, episode from history is in 1992, representatives of Beijing and Taipei uh, had a series of meetings in which they, legend has it, I should say, reached the 92 consensus. Right. The mythical, uh, possibly apocryphal 92 yes. consensus. Uh, I mean, I think it was only given that title retroactively by a, a later uh, authorities on either side. Uh, but according to that agreement, uh, both sides agreed that there was one China, but they would reserve, they would agree to disagree on how that would be defined. And this seems to have been good enough to establish a working relationship between the two sides for quite a while, uh, you know, into the 2000s. But under the DPP leadership, Taiwan has somewhat drifted away from adherence to that, uh, to the point, frankly, and this is the bottom line, that Tsai Ing-wen will no longer publicly endorse the 92 consensus. Right. And Beijing interprets this as a retreat from uh, the One China framework. Uh, And this is where I think, uh, this is one of the arguments I make in the articles as well. Why does this matter to the United States? I think this is a crucial point. It's because Beijing perceives that Washington is implicitly endorsing Taiwan's and particularly size retreat, if not withdrawal from a one China framework. And in turn, they view Washington's policies in terms of upgrading their relationship with Taiwan as not only an implicit endorsement of that shifting position, but as a move by Washington toward retreating from the one China framework. And there are in fact voices in Washington that think the time has come to do that for historical and political reasons. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen them grow louder and louder. So let's talk about what the U.S. has actually done. I mean, how much have the Trump administration's moves on Taiwan, beginning with the Taiwan phone call even before Trump took office, and stretching through Pompeo's last announcement, um, lifting self-imposed contact, how, how much has that, in your view, taken us closer to actually abandoning the official One China policy? Well, that's very much a matter of debate because our position is, uh, I mean, every interaction we have with the Chinese on the Taiwan issue, we reaffirm that we still are committed to our one China policy as outlined in the three communiques and as reflected in the Taiwan Relations Act. But this is where I think salami slicing and unilateral changes to the status quo uh, starts to emerge on all sides. I mean, it was during the 1990s partly because of strategic uh, dynamics, but also because of the impact of democratization, that we became much more active in supporting Taiwan's representation in international organizations, uh, to which that was the extent to which that was possible, and relevant to the appointment that or the, the directive that Secretary Pompeo issued last week, uh, we began to review and kind of codify the restrictions on how we would interact diplomatically, diplomatically with Taiwan. And it was during the 1990s, uh, 1994, congressional, political, and just general diplomatic pressure uh, prompted uh, a review of Taiwan policy in Washington, the result of which was a determination that we would kind of incrementally expand the level uh, at which we would interact with Taiwan folks Mm -hmm. and allow them to visit the United States, uh, and the level of U.S. representatives or U.S. officials who would be allowed to visit Taiwan. Pursuant to that, uh, the following year in 1995, the then president of Taiwan, uh, Li Dongwei, was allowed to visit the United States. Uh, he had uh, received a degree at Cornell University. And That's this right. was a very volatile episode in, uh, in the history of this relationship. Coming as uh, it did, you know, shortly before the first free election, too, right? Yes. Li Dongwei was the... Uh, well, we're getting into some arcane elements of Taiwan politics here, but uh, Li Dengwei was the protege of Chen uh, Zhang Jingguo, right. uh, who was the mainlander son of Chiang Kai-shek. But when Chiang Jingguo decided to democratize, he realized that the local population of Taiwan, the ethnic uh, natives of the island, needed to be incorporated into politics, surprisingly, because Chiang Kai-shek had never agreed to do that. Li Dengwei was a, 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 local, a Taiwan native. He was not a mainlander. That's right. And he was the one who began this process of, well, again, 
depending on how you perceive it, and this is debatable, uh, of raising questions about the utility of the One China Framework and the 92 Consensus. In any event, he was seen as a separatist by Beijing. Right. And we decided under the Taiwan policy guidance that had been uh, revised in 1994 to allow him to visit. Previous to that time, we had never allowed a Taiwan president to do anything other than to transit an airport in the United States en route to a country where he was recognized as the leader of the Republic of China. Mm -hmm. And long story short, this was a tremendously volatile reaction was generated from Beijing, who launched military exercises uh, on the Taiwan Strait uh, and protested vehemently that we were in violation of the One China Principle or of our One China commitment, uh, Mm -hmm. because we had never allowed this to happen before, and we decided that we were going to allow it to happen. And and this was the thing that rankled the Chinese, that every time we make changes to this, to the level or the the nature of interaction with Taiwan, the U.S. view is that it's it's consistent with our our past commitments. Beijing, of course, believes that it's not. Uh, But that was resolved, I mean, in ways that laid the seeds of greater tension. uh, Yeah. It wasn't resolved before the U.S. moved, uh, under the Clinton administration, moved two carrier groups to the mouth of the Taiwan Strait. Yes. Well, and unfortunately, the longer-term historical impact of that was that, as my friend Don John Culver likes to say, uh, it was that episode that convinced the Chinese that their military threat, as of 1995 and 1996, was not deemed credible enough to affect uh, behavior and policies in Beijing and Taipei, so uh, um, that was one of the drivers of the military modernization program that uh, that Beijing uh, has been conducting since then. Uh, right. To the extent that the equation is very different than it than it was then. Yeah. Um, the first Gulf War and the and the uh, the Taiwan Straits crisis of ninety five ninety six for sure. Yes. Well, and this was all reinforced by uh, the subsequent tensions that were generated by Chen Shui-bian's administration. Uh, there were some other war games in the Strait or at least military demonstrations, about the time of the election in 2004, uh, well, Chen Shui-bian's re-election. So, I mean, what what Beijing has seen since then is this incremental increase in U.S. support for Taiwan and, uh, unfortunately for them, uh, a gradual decrease in the Chinese-ness of the self-identity of the people of Taiwan. Uh, Time is not on Beijing's side in terms of a domestic constituency on the island being interested in unifying with the mainland. So you've you've had uh, the trend lines of this drift from Beijing's perspective on Taiwan politics and the terms under which they're willing to engage with the mainland, and then the simultaneous trend in terms of Washington's incremental upgrading of its interactions with Taiwan and its support for Taiwan's international representation and the economic relationship. I mean, all of these things are perfectly reasonable and in fact need to be pursued. I mean, we have an incredibly important economic relationship with with, with Taiwan. That's right. Uh, and we, because they're a democracy, a like-minded democracy, we support their international interaction. But Beijing, this has never been comfortable with this. And this is the mm. significance of the policy statements that were generated in the last six months by the Trump administration. Assistant Secretary David Stilwell, I think it was in August or September, uh, announced a new round of incremental upgrades in our relationship with Taiwan and its support and our support for its international stature. Uh, again, wholly reasonable. That was in his in his Heritage Foundation speech. Yes. And and in congressional testimony that he subsequently gave. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but we crossed a new line uh, last week because what Secretary Pompeo essentially announced, and it remains unclear exactly operationally what the intention here was, but he basically announced that all prior restrictions on diplomatic interaction between U.S. and Taiwan uh, officials were to be lifted and declared null and void. And predictably, the Chinese believe and interpret this as, well, from their view, a violation of prior commitments. Right. Uh, you, you you promised in the three communiques that you would not only su- not only would you support one China, but you would not support the idea of one China and one Taiwan. And from Beijing's perspective, we're getting close to that. Yeah, yeah. We've seen calls in some quarters, most famously probably from CFR President Richard Haas, to abandon 
the strategic ambiguity that has long characterized the U.S. approach to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, your piece on the inconvenient truth is, I guess you could say it's largely a response to Haas's piece uh, making that case. What, for those who might not be familiar with the term, is strategic ambiguity? Well, I mentioned before that uh, we have no explicit defense pact with Taiwan. Uh, We had one from, I think, 1954 until we normalized relations with Beijing. Uh, And uh, what we substituted for that was uh, the language in the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, which, as I said... uh, Wishy-washy. Well, I mean, it it says we we, we will provide for Taiwan's self-defense. Uh, that was, you know, the, the justification for the arms sales, but also the fact that, you know, any use of force by Beijing would be considered a matter of grave concern, I think is the language. Uh, and uh, so... I'm but sorry. it doesn't come close to committing us to to, uh, to military intervention. No, actually, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I lost my train of thought there for just a second. But yes, the... Uh, and. So the way that we have framed that, and I think, uh, I mean, there have been several policy statements from Washington about this, uh, but the idea is that we want to retain some ambiguity uh, uh, on how we would respond to a use of force uh, in Beijing uh, for two reasons. Uh, And this is an interesting part of the equation. One is to keep Beijing guessing, uh, but also to make sure that Taiwan Uh, does not take for granted U.S. support and push a separatist or an independence-minded agenda that we would not support. Right. Uh, So, I mean, I've heard a number of people in the policy world, I mean, people you doubtless know, say pretty unambiguously that that the U.S. position is actually clear and that for the past 40-odd years, it's always been that were China to attack Taiwan and attempt unification by force with no prior declaration of independence by Taiwan, the U.S. simply would intervene. And on the other hand, if an attack... Uh, by China came only after a declaration of independence that the U.S. would not intervene. Was it ever that simple? Is it that simple? No. Well, I, I think we're learning. It's None of this is very simple. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, no, it's not that straightforward because, you know, there there is a there is a fault line there between both Beijing and Taiwan's perceptions and ours. And we don't want to encourage either side to do anything that would force this issue on us. Right. So you argue that that's jettisoning the strategic ambiguity in, in favor of strategic clarity, um, you know, that is making it clear that the U.S. would intervene where China to actually use force, uh, that that clarification would actually increase the odds of China making an aggressive move. Uh, can, you, can you explain why you think that's the case? Well, I, I think that, I mean, that's a, a speculative judgment, but I think that it's, uh, maybe I would frame it this way. I think it's at, le- it, it, it's at least as likely uh, to be counterproductive as it is to, as it is to provide a, effective deterrence, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is, I don't think the Chinese have any doubts about how we would react. In fact, I was at a seminar several years ago where uh, a retired diplomat made an observation, which I think I quoted in the article, which I've always thought was very, very insightful, if uh, if a little bit cute, that there were three parties to the cross-state dispute: Beijing, Taipei, and Washington. Only one of them doesn't know for sure what Washington would do. And that's Washington. <laughs> yes. I mean, that was the implication. Because right. Taipei, uh, arguably, uh, a lot of people will tell you, would, takes for granted that the United States would come to its aid uh, for strategic and political reasons. And I think Beijing, for, for many years, has assumed that's the case. So I don't actually think that there is any additional deterrence we're going to get out of confirming something that the Chinese have already believed. But I think more importantly, our relative military capability to enforce such a commitment is much more problematic than it would have been 20, 25 years ago. Right. So uh, I don't know how that would alter Beijing's calculus because the Chinese already uh, have been growing in their relative competence about not necessarily who would prevail, but how hard of a fight we would get into if we were to engage with the Chinese across the Taiwan Strait. But I think the bottom line is that the Chinese would interpret such an explicit commitment as a pretty clean break from our commitment under the three communiques. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think if, you know, I think you can make the case that that in itself could be the catalyst for a use of force. Again, there's all kinds of uh, 
speculation as to what the threshold is or what the red lines are. Uh, actually, you mentioned earlier that uh, we would only respond if uh, if there was no declaration of independence. But um, arguments have been made that those red lines have been crossed and the Chinese are just waiting for the most opportune time. Taiwan's view, even to this day on both parties, is that we don't need to declare independence because we've been independent for quite a while. Uh, so that's not an issue. But I, I think that's why uh, strategic clarity, I think, would, would not be a net gain to the equation in terms of deterrence. For a long time, people who looked at the cross-straits relationship sort of optimistically, and especially true during the Maingzhou years, where things really did appear to be you know, moving in good directions, where you had the three links, postal communication, direct flights, direct phone, you know, there there were a lot of people who were very optimistic about about convergence, and I think you know we were we we saw these formerly very rigidly authoritarian states that were now uh, moving toward economic liberalization and some political pluralism, and and yeah, I think there was there was a lot of optimism, and China during that time, of course, uh, touted this one country, two systems uh, model as. A, a way in which unification, reunification in the Chinese perspective might actually be realized. But after Hong Kong, after the national security law, it's probably safe to say that one country, two systems just holds zero appeal to anyone in Taiwan, save the most pro-mainland blue people there. But uh, as far as you can tell, has Beijing taken to heart any of the lessons of Hong Kong? And if, if so, what lessons? I mean, does the C believe he can restore anyone's confidence in one country, two systems? Uh, that is one of the $64,000 questions right now. They don't appear to be hmm. gaining many lessons from it. Uh, right. This is a prelude. I, I, you know, I, I think that one of Beijing's perspective, I think Beijing's perspective on the resonance of this argument in Taiwan certainly predates the developments in Hong Kong. What the Chinese have seen, uh, and again, this is one of the side effects, uh, well, main effects of democratization on Taiwan uh, is that uh, interest in reunification and any identity as Chinese has, a, has, has a diminished considerably. China's not on Beijing's side in terms of having a constituency on the island, as I said before, I think, that's interested in, in right. joining with it. And I think this is one of the, uh, one of the other shorthands that I've used often is that Beijing can be relatively complacent when it thinks time is on its side. But when time is not on its side, that's when it gets antsy and nervous. Right. And I think they've, they're losing confidence in time being on their side in several respects. One is the, you know, the national identity of the people in Taiwan. Two is, frankly, the evolution of the KMT, the Nationalist Party's view on one China. That's right. Because in its own way, it has had to be, the leadership of the KMT has had to be responsive to local politics. So they, in a sense, have somewhat retreated uh, uh, from, you know, the clarity of their position on one China. And this is not encouraging for the Chinese or for the, for the leadership in Beijing. Like a lot of people see, see Baingzhou's defeat in, in 2016 in, in just exactly those, those terms. Yes, yeah, they'll, they'll always see, you know, it's all about them if you're in Beijing, uh, even though it's, you know, usually local bread and butter issues that uh, decide mm. elections in Taiwan. Uh, that's not the focus of the Chinese. But one country, two systems comes into the equation, as you said, because they've had this offer on the table for Hong Kong and Taiwan for ever since the days of Deng Xiaoping. Now, I think one of the mistakes that the Chinese have made is not clarifying that they didn't have to follow the same model. Right. Uh, that Taiwan's version of one country, two systems wouldn't have to be the same as, as Hong Kong's. So the liability that's emerged for the Chinese is, you know, its appeal in Hong Kong has been all but completely destroyed. And now we can get into a long tangent about how things came to the point that they have in Hong Kong. I mean, I, I think Beijing genuinely does not believe that it has abandoned one country, two systems or autonomy for Hong Kong. You know, its actions in Hong Kong over the last uh, two years or so, and again, this is from their narrow perspective, were necessary because there was always an understanding and obligation by the Hong Kong government that it needed to enact its own national security laws. Article 23. Yes, it's part of the basic law, and the, the I think there was an implicit reference to it in the joint declaration. Uh, That's right. But again, this is just from the narrow, I'm not an apologist for this view, but from the Chinese perspective, what happened in Hong Kong last summer was, from the CCP's uh, perspective, a necessary thing 
unfortunate but necessary because the local government had not only failed to enact national security legislation as they were obliged and required constitutionally to do, they had lost control over public demonstrations that were resisting both that legislation and Beijing's interpretation of democratic evolution in Hong Kong. And that's a separate issue we could argue about, but it's a narrow emphasis on control from Chinese perspective. But be that as it may, it was a boon to those on Taiwan, the Taiwan government, who said, see, this is what one country, two systems is supposed to look like. We're not interested. Right. 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 Now, if Beijing was more clever, well, they, what they should be doing is trying to, if, if they say that they haven't given up autonomy uh, on Hong Kong, they need to be very clear on what's left of it. <laughs> Because uh, so far, they're not very <laughs> persuasive. No, indeed not. Uh, and, if they, and if they think one country, two systems is going to be different for Hong Kong or Taiwan than it was for Hong Kong. They, need to, they really ought to spell out exactly how. Yeah, and right? they're not doing that. No. But, no. So they're not gaining any points. And in fact, everything they're doing in Hong Kong is just reinforcing the resistance on Taiwan to engaging with Beijing on, on, on any kind of unification over the long term. Mm-hmm. Earlier in our conversation, you flicked at this idea that, you know, and then you, you wrote in your piece, the good news is that contrary to the prevailing wisdom, Beijing is not, in fact, looking for excuses or an opportunity to attack Taiwan. It is looking for reasons not to do so. Uh, the danger is that Chinese leaders currently do not perceive Washington and Taipei to be providing those reasons. Um, can you suggest some of the ways that Washington and Taipei could, in fact, provide Beijing with some good reasons not to attack? Well, I, I think we have to confront uh, the lack of clarity uh, on what one China means, both in Taipei right. and in Washington. It's increasingly unpersuasive to Beijing when we affirm our one China policy uh, without defining it, and we do it simultaneous with actions, legal and otherwise, by the Taiwan government, which seem to be a withdrawal from it. And again, you know, I, I think this is kind of a choice that some people want to make. Uh, either we can we can substantially reaffirm our compliance with One China, or we can withdraw from it. And as I said, there are some people who think that it's outlasted its usefulness, and Beijing uh, doesn't deserve any favors. So we're not going to reaffirm it, nor are we going to put pressure on Taiwan to reaffirm it. In fact, well, I don't want to suggest that we should be pressuring Taiwan. I think we should be talking to Taiwan and clarifying our relative positions on this in a way that, I guess, reassures Beijing that we haven't abandoned all of our commitments. Now, right. the other thing that needs to happen, I think we said in the article, is that Beijing needs to come to understand that its approach has not been very productive either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to, and in fact, this is one of the things that was emphasized uh, in the latter article, that uh, uh, one of the consequences of democratization in Taiwan was the inclusion starting in the late 1990s in our formulation, Washington's formulation of its one China policy, of the notion that we think that the long-term issue between Beijing and Taipei needs to be resolved in a way that's acceptable to the people of Taiwan. Right. Uh, now, Beijing, of course, never bought onto that, but I think it behooves the Chinese to recognize if they want any kind of a peaceful resolution of this issue, they're going to have to get into some kind of a dialogue that, uh, that reassures the people of Taiwan that their interests are peaceful, if in fact they are. Uh, I think mm. they are. I mean, China doesn't want to have a war over Taiwan. So it's looking for, I, I think all, all three parties, I think the way we concluded the article, would benefit from an understanding that we, eh, it doesn't sound very gratifying, or, but I think we need to kick this can down the road a little bit further. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know that's what we, we you know we keep coming back to. Uh, this, this is what uh, we we talked about last week in in a conversation with Mike Swain and a couple of other folks, kicking the can down the road. But well, and, somebody... and if I can add one point about that, it, it's partly because, and again, it's it's uh, kicking the can down the road is you know it's not a solution to a problem, but I think it would be an acknowledgement of another part of the dilemma here. I think as important as Taiwan's self identity and democracy are. As a geostrategic realist in the Kennan School, I think both Taiwan and its supporters in Washington, its most fervent supporters, need to understand that it's not a good time to press your case when the strategic odds are not in your favor. Right. And they're not in their favor in terms of the economic interdependence that both Taiwan and the United States have with China, and certainly the military balance across the strait. 
So then good sense simply says that we have to create the conditions under which our strategic odds are, are more favorable to, to make such a change. So, I mean, as somebody like me, I mean, I've got a lot of family in Taiwan. I've visited there many times. I have a real fondness for the place. I mean, and I, I recognize very clearly, as I think all people should, that there is a distinct Taiwanese identity. Uh, it, it's fully formed uh, in an ideal world. It would be allowed true national expression, full national expression. But it's very frustrating, I think, that we are locked into this situation by history, by extant, you know, U.S. commitments, by China's very prickly obstinacy often. Uh, there is just something that, you know, I think most people recognize as profoundly unjust about it all. Uh, so, you know, we're at an impasse kicking the can down the road. I mean, I guess maybe that what, that, that uh, buys us time until people in China uh, who are still kind of wound up in revanchism and, and strident nationalism are just going to die. <laughs> the next generation that cares a little less. Well, that might be the case. It's just... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean there, there's so many, you know, points I can interject there from a historical perspective. I mean, one is, you know, the, the idea of unification has become so central to China's national identity. Uh, and of course, obviously, a lot of this has been imposed by the party, in terms of its definition of, of of the imperative of unification with China, I mean, because from as I said before, uh, from Beijing's perspective, Taiwan is the unresolved business of the civil war, right. uh, and uh, the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is dependent, uh, in, in their view, their tenure in office and the internal stability is dependent on their being able to retain that dream. But it's. That's not the way it's perceived externally. No, and I mean, and I think you know part of the problem is that look, the idea of unification is sort of the sine qua non for sort of true patriotism in China. Uh, that is not something that occurs necessarily organically. That's something that is kept you know afloat by the constant efforts of of the party, right? I mean, they have that, to that, continually remind people. That, that's true, yeah. but I mean, I think as a historian, I guess the point I was going to make was that it's it's not just that. It's not just communist propaganda. Uh, you know, one of my little uh, aphorisms is that the Chinese Communist Party did not create Chinese nationalism. No, indeed not. Chinese nationalism created the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> okay. It also created the KMT. So there is a genuine and legitimate nationalist sentiment uh, that it's not exclusively a product of Chinese propaganda that's reflected in uh, in the in the notion of Chinese nationalism, which, if you want to use a non-pejorative term, is really patriotism. Now, how important Taiwan is to that equation uh, is greatly debated because Taiwan was kind of an afterthought to to China for most of its history, uh, and in fact, right. it's had effective control over it for a very short period of its history. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's really only since, you know, I mean, the, the later part of the Qianlong reign uh, and then really only until 1895, right? Well, and I think, uh, you know, as a Cold War historian, uh, one of my arguments, which is certainly debatable, is that Taiwan became strategically important to the mainland when it perceived that it was being supported by external forces as the seat of a separatist regime. Right. So June of 1950 was a very important date uh, when we decided to essentially re-intervene in the Chinese Civil War, when Harry Truman sent the Seventh Fleet in to prevent uh, Beijing from trying to finish the job by invading Taiwan after the uh, North Korean engagement was uh, or invasion was launched, the other point I would make, you said about you know it, it is tragic and it's frustrating historically, but there are many places around the globe where there are unresolved dilemmas left over from history. You know, the, the Palestinians and the government of Israel wish they could wish away uh, the dilemma that exists. The Balfour Declaration. Yeah. There. The Korean, the division of Korea, uh, the, you know, the fact that we have a communist island of Cuba 100 miles off the coast of Florida. This is something we can't wish away. Uh, and in fact, we can't wish away the, well, I won't go into depth on this, but I mean, there is a polarization and dysfunction in American politics right now, which isn't going to end tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, indeed not. Speaking of tomorrow, uh, I mean, we are recording today, uh, the day, the last full day of the Trump administration. If you could sit down with Joe Biden and Tony Blinken, with Jake Sullivan, 
Kurt Campbell, uh, Laura Rosenberger, and, and, and compel them through persuasion or hypnosis or the Jedi mind trick <laughs> to just listen to you on Taiwan, what would you have them do? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I think <laughs> I'm never I'm never I never feel qualified to confront that because I spent my entire career just as an intelligence analyst. Uh, I informed policy decisions. I didn't make them. <laughs> OK, fair enough. Fair enough. But OK, just, you know, king for a day, though. I think they're going to do what they should do, which is, first of all, uh, I think they recognize that there's a lot of repair work that needs to be done. Uh, in the relationship with China and, in fact, the U.S. relationship with the rest of the region. because And, in fact, I published another article just last week. Uh, I think that the Trump administration has severely degraded both the U.S. position in East Asia and the relationship with China. And, you know, most of the people that are coming into the Biden administration, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Kurt Campbell, Laura Rosenberger, I, I saw today that I think Eli Ratner uh, is going to be one of the China folks over at the Pentagon. Uh, right. And I interacted with all of these people when I was still in government uh, during the years of the Obama administration. And I think that they're going to I think they recognize the need to retreat from the more confrontational and frankly, ideological missionary approach to China that has been promulgated by the Trump administration for the last year or so. Uh, I mean, my own view, and I've written about this separately, is that I think that the, I think there's an exaggerated sense of the nature and scope of the challenge from China. I think it's it's a profound challenge and unprecedented because the Chinese bring more to bear than the Soviets ever did uh, right. to the strategic kind of rivalry and competition than they did during the Cold War. But I, I, I'm confident that the, Trump, the Biden administration is going to be more pragmatic and realistic about how to deal with China. And, you know, you asked what I would suggest that they do. Uh, you know, I could be very parochial and say, I would say, listen to the analysis that's being generated about China and East Asia from within your intelligence community. <laughs> uh, because, frankly, the Trump administration didn't always do that. Uh, no, indeed not. Now, I, I think at the same time, they know they, you know, uh, the idea that there's a lot of people that are veterans of the Obama administration, uh, I think that's it's an issue, but it's not a real valid concern. I think this is a group of people that they, they know they can't just turn the clock back eight years. Right. Uh, they know that the region has changed, that China is a more formidable challenge to us than it was before. They also know that the issues have been reframed simply by the nature of how the relationship between the Trump administration and China has evolved over the last couple of years. I think they need, they're, clearly they're going to recognize the need to adopt a firm line with China. Uh, but like I said, I think they're going to be more pragmatic and more realistic. They're going to acknowledge the need for cooperation with China. I think they are not going to accept the you know, the, the notion that was uh, promulgated many times by the, uh, by the Trump administration, that engagement with China was based on specious premises and has proven a failure. Uh, <laughs> this despite Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner having written exactly that in their well, first article. Well, Kurt's views have evolved, I think. Okay, uh, I so. <laughs> But I mean, the, uh, I mean I, I just, historically, that's just not true. Uh, right. And you can't have a relationship with China if you're not willing to engage with them. Uh, the question has always been what the terms of engagement are. And I think cooperation between the United States and China is is imperative for the sake of both countries and for the rest of the world. Uh, and it's clear that the Biden administration uh, recognizes that. They're going to be very much focused on, well, and the most important, I think, element is to much more attention to working closely with the allies and partners in the region and in the world and how to deal with the challenge from China. They're certainly going to be more attentive to democratic principles and human rights issues than Trump at least was explicitly. So, but, 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 <laughs> until, I, the, I, you know, until the 11th hour when well, he yes. decided. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, there, there are going to be constraints, though, because you know, I, I think that, first of all, I mean, this is an administration coming in that's going to be, and again, I'm not an analyst of domestic politics, but uh, they have their hands full. We have, have our hands full. This is, you know, there are domestic priorities that are immediate, are pressing, and are existential almost. So it's not like they're going to be able to shift all their attention to foreign policy and not exclusively on how to deal with China either. There's also, there are, there are going to be political constraints on kind of a knee-jerk reversal of everything that uh, the Trump administration has done on China policy. I, I don't expect the tariffs to be lifted immediately and until and unless there's some reciprocity that we can expect from the Chinese for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how quickly there's going to be consideration of 
rejoining the TPP process. And you know, just briefly on the Taiwan issue, I think that I've seen several things that were written by uh, others over the last week in the wake of Secretary Pompeo's announcement about the Taiwan interactions. I think there'll be a review of Taiwan policy that'll be smart and deliberate, you know, and not precipitous like that. I guess the only, the only, um, not really a concern I have, but I'm still curious because one of the things I've written a lot about is, as I said, an accurate assessment of the nature and scope of the challenge from China. And I'll be looking to, to see uh, where the new administration goes in that regard, because I think the outgoing administration has an exaggerated view. And I'm pretty confident that some of the people in the Biden team who have simply just more experience and expertise on China than I think has been typical of the Trump administration are going to approach that. But I guess the last point I would make is that I'm a little bit uh, curious where we are. I think that we've always been at risk over the last several years of uh, overestimating the threat from China, but also overestimating the United States' own leverage and capabilities and interests relative to China. Uh, Hmm. I think it's very important that the Biden administration is coming in with a commitment to engaging more proactively and substantively with the allies. But I think we have to be aware of, one, the erosion of our allies' confidence in our credibility, our reliability, our commitment to the, our, our attention span in the region over the last several years. And in fact, this even predated the Trump administration because there were, there was always some uncertainties about what the substance and sustainability of the pivot, the rebalance was under the previous administration. Right. And Kurt was certainly central to that. And I think we're going to have to, uh, we're going to find ourselves having to adjust to the recalibration of our allies and partners of attitudes toward the United States that's happened as a result of that erosion, uh, certainly yeah. over the last four years. I think there's certainly remains a very strong appetite for a restoration of U.S. leadership in the region. Uh, we hear that from the Australians, the Japanese, the Koreans, everybody, and the Southeast Asians. But I think we've done ourselves a disservice by disappointing them and not showing them enough attention uh, and in some ways taking them for granted over the last four years. And I, I hope and I think the Biden administration will confront that, but it's going to take a while to get back to where we were. Well, we'll all be watching very, very carefully. <laughs> Paul here, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, for joining me on this uh, this fantastically interesting conversation. Uh, Paul, let's move to recommendations. First, I want to quickly remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we're doing with this podcast, with the other shows in our network, uh, with the SupChina site, then by all means, uh, the, the best way you can show your support is to subscribe to SupChina Access. Uh, become an Access member and you get all sorts of uh, goodies. The Of course, the daily newsletter being the most important of them. But also, you get a chance to download this podcast early on Mondays rather than waiting till Thursday. Anyway, uh, let's move on to recommendations. Paul, what did you have for us? Oh, my. Well, when you gave me a preview of this question, I have given it a lot of thought, and it was there's so many things I could suggest. That's <laughs> a it's a really kind of a hard one, but uh, I, I, I kept coming back to my mindset as a historian. Uh, oh, and good. The fact that my brain is usually uh, stuck in the 19th century, I guess that's one of the complaints people make against some of my analysis too. But. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what I came up with was, I think, something that's going to be maybe somewhat mundane, but somewhat, somewhat uh, surprising. And my recommendation is to read the novels of Charles Dickens. Oh, fantastic recommendation. You know, I, you know, I don't know if people read them anymore, but they should. Uh, they should have their children read them, and they should reread them. Uh, I, I've read them all. I've reread several of them. I think you should read some of those that are not that well known, like the Pickwick Papers and Dombey and Son and things like that. And, and this is because... Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I like to escape, uh, well, into the 19th century in part. But, uh, I mean, in this day and age, uh, it's, it's often nice to, to escape to something that's uh, not quite the present, to go someplace that's not too far away and not too long ago. Uh, and Dickens has always been just one of my favorite things because his books are delightful. And I, I mean that literally. They are full of delight. Uh, yeah, he is absolutely. the greatest storyteller, I think, in the English language, and he created the best characters ever. <laughs> and I always tell people when I, when I finish yeah. one of Dickens's books, I always feel the sense of leaving people that I've really enjoyed spending time with. Hmm. And, yeah, absolutely. And when I reread those books, I get to spend time with them again. <laughs> 
This is one of the more more fun recommendations I've heard in a while. I mean, I'm also a fan of 19th century literature, British literature especially. I, I mean, George Eliot's Middlemarch is probably my favorite novel of oh, all yes. time. Well, I could go yeah, into... I mean, uh, I mentioned Dickens because the alternative would be Dostoevsky. I've read all of his novels too. I mean, and that's wonderful because I started out as a historian on Russia when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just really encourage uh, your audience to, for those who, who don't read Dickens anymore, I think it's it, it's time to go back because, you know, you should enjoy the company of those characters and their humor and their stories, and it's just one of my favorite things. So that was my suggestion for a recommendation. That's that's a marvelous suggestion. <laughs> okay, mine is uh, for a recent work of nonfiction. It's called Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Death, Love, and Art by an archaeologist named Rebecca Rag Sykes. Rag is W-R-A-G-G Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. Uh, she has synthesized so much research uh, on on Neanderthals. I mean, and it's an astonishing amount of it to really reconstruct what life was like. I mean, it, it, she uh, has the skill of a novelist. I think there are so many of the, the chapters that open with sort of novelistic representations of life uh, as a Neanderthal. And it's it's brilliant. I mean, she really makes them come to life as the human beings that they, they really were. Uh, and I've learned so much just reading this book that that I was just oblivious to earlier. Well, that actually, that's uh, you've gotten me inspired because it it fits right in. Because uh, I, I I read either history or old classic fiction, so this will be uh-huh. this will be the, the, the this will be the historical nonfiction uh, part for me. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it's it's really, you know, very much in the weeds. And it, it's written so that I think it would be appreciated by people who actually do work on digs and who, who do work in sort of, you know, paleoanatomy or whatever. But it's 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 very good. Uh, and it's gotten fantastic reviews. I, I actually came across this book because I read a review of it in the New York Times by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who is the author, a controversial guy, but uh, who wrote the book Sapiens. Yes, I read and, that one. Uh, yeah, and Homo Deus, uh, very very good book though. I'm, I'm I highly recommend it. I've not quite finished it, but I'm I'm also get back to it tonight, <laughs> or as I go for a walk later. But um, yeah, fantastic, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I I look forward to having you back on the program again. Oh, thank you. This has been a tremendous opportunity. I greatly enjoyed it. So glad you did, and it's just been wonderful having you. And uh, hope to see you again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>